Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from touring houses in Japan, it's Romeo Mora. Romeo, find any house that you like? Yeah, this is a nice particular house. If you don't mind constant phone ringing, the pitter-patter of feet, and this scary woman dressed in white telling you to bury together. But other than that, really affordable, great neighborhood, just slightly cursed. Nice. So maybe I can take that house from you for my wife. You know, me and my wife could live there. I mean, I'm sure plenty of happily married couples have lived in that house before. And why not us, right? Right. Today, we're going to be talking about the Juon Origins television series. Juon Origins is a Japanese horror streaming television miniseries based on the Juon franchise, the first installment of the franchise not to feature the recurring antagonist Kayako Saki. So there will be no one joining us for this one. Like we talked about in our Broadchurch final thoughts, we wanted to do something that was short because of the strikes that were going on. We had to come up with something new, and this is what we landed on. We wanted to do this because neither of us have watched any Juon films or any of the grudge films. I've never seen any of the trailers for any of these movies. Didn't see the trailer for the show. To be honest, I didn't even know the show existed back in 2020. So that's my quick rundown of that. Romeo, have you heard of this show? Not the show. I've heard of the grudge, the American adaptation. But other than that, like, no. I think it's my first Japanese horror movie. And wow, what an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about you, episode four. Oh, man. Not knowing much about the franchise and watching this series and getting to the points that we get to. Boy, was I surprised (laughs) by some choices. Um, (laughs) Seriously, what the fuck? (laughs) But before we get to those very graphic details, let's talk about that first episode, because that first episode does a lot of buildup. You know, it's set in 1988, starts out with a paranormal investigator whose name Yasuo Odajima and I should preface by saying, if we're butchering these Japanese names, I apologize. We're going to absolutely do our best. We're not going to shy away from them. We're going to do our best with these Japanese names. He appears in a talk show featuring an actress whose name Haruka Hanjo, who relates a personal experience with the supernatural. Haruka's boyfriend, Tetsuwa, is scouting for a potential house to move into upon marrying her. After a visit to one particular house, a woman in white carrying a baby begins haunting him. So we focus on this aspect of the story for which I found very intriguing and interesting. It seemed like at first, yeah, this is about Odajima and following him and maybe mm-hmm. as an investigator uncovering this story. And then, But it becomes so much more than that. But initially, what were your impressions of Odajima? Because I always felt like, or at least at first, I felt like he was exploiting these supernatural stories in order to write these novels and turn a profit, similarly to Michael Huisman's character in The Haunting of Hill House. It's weird. And it could be like a cultural thing because there seems like to be like an obsession but he was calm about that obsession he goes I don't know why I do this and this becomes like a big occurring thing throughout the series where he's like I don't know why I collect these stories but I just do and he's asked that repeatedly it was like kind of an interesting thing where he's just like yep this is what I do and yeah. no one really bats an eye where if it was I feel like if it wasn't a, an American production it would be like a Jack Nicholson character like depiction <laughs> from the shining the compulsive writing i don't think and, you're far off on that at and all right people would 
would be really disturbed and treat him with lack of respect that he has shown. And again, it could just be like a cultural thing. He's famous. That, you know, let's well, not well, cut yeah. it short. Like, he's famous. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's famous. But though you also have like other person, like Zach Baggins from that one reality show, like Ghost Hunting, where he's not shown any respect. <laughs> oh, Ghost Adventures. Ghost Adventures. Because if you think about like how we treat our quote unquote ghost hunters, they're not respected. You don't see them outside of like Halloween programming. And even then, they're not always given the same respect as other guests on talk shows. We're here. It was kind of like, again, I don't know much about Japanese culture, but it seems like he is respected. They do take him seriously as they're talking about this phenomenon. And it could be to the fact that it is taking place in a period of time in Japan's history where a lot of gruesome murders were happening. I love how that was sprinkled in throughout the series. And I don't know, like, if it was just like a welcome distraction that they're focusing on something other than the horrific stuff that was happening in the surrounding areas, which makes it seems to be implied that there are other houses or places like this. It can't be tied to just the one house. Right, because that's where my mind was thinking, like it was somehow just like festering into, you know, almost like a disease is going from one person to the next and it's just spreading throughout. Like it follows, but just Exactly, exactly like with it follows. If you actually read into or watch a lot of these, this is where I show my cars used to be obsessed (laughs) with haunted house shows. When there are traumatic experience in one location, you sort of unlock this negative presence, not necessarily like a ghost, but there's just dark energy that just Mm -hmm. infects people who live, who cohabitate in the house where this trauma lives or was born mm-hmm. and it sort of filters in and i feel like that's what they were talking about it's just one story but clearly there's incidents all around and maybe like we're focusing on just this one ghost story this haunted house but mm-hmm. maybe there's several yeah yeah that's a good point i didn't think about it in that way i can't but just this one house yeah this one yeah not just because <laughs> remember and we'll get more into it this one particular house that we're following you are following the pattern of the year original trauma of the house, which was a man kidnaps a woman and forcibly impregnates her and has the baby. And she yes. kills her captive and then she dies herself as a result of that childbirth. Yes, and this and happened in the 1950s that, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and this is a cycle mm-hmm. that keeps happening because there's no deviation of what's happening to all these characters. Yeah, so the other side of this first episode, you have a high school student named Kiyomi who transfers to a new school upon the urging of her abusive mom, Mina. Kiyomi is invited by her newfound friends, Yoshi and Mai. They go to the house visited by Tetsuya. The girls are joined by Yudai, a male student from a neighboring school. It is revealed that Yoshi and Mai are luring Kiyomi to be raped by Yudai. So that's how the episode ends, which is like right there, I'm hooked. There's this like this horrible thing that's about to happen to her in this house. That's like going to be our central location throughout the series. I like that the episode ended in that sort of cliffhanger. And Kiyomi right away, I genuinely feel really bad for because mm-hmm. you can kind of tell that her mom is like this manipulative or like resentful type of person who just a real bitch to her kid, you know, when she, who probably pushed their dad away. It didn't, doesn't sound like the dad died. It sounded like he just left. Maybe he was like fed up and just left, which is unfortunate again for Kiyomi because it, it was also implied that she had a 
good relationship with her dad. So I don't know. Did you think her dad was dead or do you think he ran off? I thought he died or something happened where he's not allowed to be. The way she said it, she stated it like the mother. You got an inkling that we is accusing her daughter of seducing him. That's so right. I don't know if the mother said something where he's locked away in prison or mm. he died because the way Kiyomi describes her relationship with her father, that they were close. And I can't imagine her father just walking away like that unless he was forced to. Yeah, I agree. We get into this next episode here with seeing Yudai raping Kiyomi and they take photos of it and so they're blackmailing her and everything. And then Kiyomi, she just kind of wanders off. She hears a cat upstairs. She goes up there. She grabs a cat. She goes in the closet and then she looks up and boom, she sees the woman in white and she screams. And then she just kind of attaches herself to Yudai after that. And she even like smiles back at Yoshi because Maya's like disappeared. We don't know where the heck Maya went. She's possessed by this point, like, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. how I was interpreting yeah, yeah. it. Like yeah. her, her, it comes apparent that the woman in white sees herself in Kiyomi because of what those girls and Yudakai did to her. In a way, she spared her, but at the same time, she still meets a horrible fate. I think of all the characters, and it's hard to say who I feel worse for. I mean, I guess Kiyomi, because she was alive for as long as she was, I feel worse for her because right. she was put through so much. Whereas Tetsuya. Uh, he met his fate a lot sooner than she did but I felt really bad for him because he was he seemed like a genuinely just like sweet guy who met like this really cute Japanese actress and they both seemed to really like each other and he you know wanted to marry her and he was looking for a house to have and then marry her like he was doing all the right things right like it didn't seem like he was disingenuous at all in any of his actions even after death is doing his best to try to keep people away from the house not only Haruka but also his mom He's telling his mom, like, don't go there. And so, you know, it's just really tragic what happens to him. And that's what happened. You know, a lot of these characters, they're innocent people and they're meeting this fate over the grudge, over the Juon. And it's Uh like, it's really just, it's sad. I mean, it's, I know it's classic horror trope. Don't get me wrong, but it's still sad. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Because, like, there's two people that I feel like are the true villains. Yudai, because he did what he did and he deserves much worse. And the real estate agent. <laughs> the real estate agent is the real villain of the story. You know, the problem with the real estate agent is for me, he's not even ashamed of it. <laughs> no, no. Because, he, like, he made some sort of devil's bargain. Nothing bad's going to happen to me as long as I do this. Like, how do you Sir. feel no guilt for that? You know, just unbelievable. He's oh, like, man. no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, a serial killer. However, when you learn more about how he became the way he did, yeah. he wasn't always like this. Yeah, so Kiyomi, she gets the rape photos back and she uses it to blackmail Yudai into killing her mom. And that's like the first brutal death of the show right there is her mom getting beaten by a phone to death. Phones are a big thing prevalent yeah, in this series and mirrors, too. I noticed there's a lot of mirrors. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of mirror shots throughout the series. They do a good job of trying being subtle with it, but it's still very relevant. Like you really have to look for it. So I really like the sets for that reason. But yeah, yeah. And they they go 
off and like they run off together. It's, it's just kind of crazy how that all shaped out. It's almost like if we didn't see Kiyomi the rest of the series, I wouldn't have been surprised by that, I guess you could say. But, you know, when it comes to this Juon, it does not let go. You know, yeah. <laughs> it just it keeps going. It keeps driving you mm-hmm. to where you're ultimately be. And that's and that's death for most of them. And then you get Haruka, who has a weird dream about going to visit Tetsuya's mom. And then she sees the woman in white in Tetsuya's mom's house and then wakes up to a phone call to discover that he died. And she goes to the funeral and meets her mom. And then we get the iconic death look of, I don't even know what they call it, of Tetsuya's face, you know, that open mouth thing in the eyes. And it also could be seen as a warning. Don't become like me, Mm -hmm. which they all ended up like him anyway. Right. (laughs) Screaming. That's a really good point. Like thematically, it all checks out. It's a really uh, messed up thing to see. So Tetsuya's mom is named Michiko. And I should point that out because we are going to see her later on in the series. Can we talk about, I'm sorry, we talk about that scene where they meet, this is the first time they meet because that moment we thought he was taking her to meet his mom. You realize, oh, that was all a dream because right after she wakes up, she gets the phone call, he dead. Yeah. And then this is the first interaction and it's so calm and like, once you dare look upon my son's face, Michiko is blaming her for her son's death and it's like don't you want to see what you did which that's a horrific thing to do to someone because the whole point of seeing someone before they're being put to rest is remembering them as they were alive that's the purpose of an open casket arresting peaceful face like they're being put laid to rest they're in a better place but in this shot clearly he's in hell and yeah that's a really good point and uh, i did think about this as well this is a really messed up thing to ask this is basically implying like hey you partially responsible for this and I need you to see like what your actions have caused type of situation you know yeah I definitely got that interpretation as well when so when that happened I was thinking is Michiko like is she a mean person you know like you know is she like Mina are we getting a theme where like parents are like messed up to their kids or something you know like like along those lines but as we come to find out no Michiko is actually a more of a an ally than how we initially meet her when they have a real conversation Michiko basically sort of explains that yeah he's sensitive like i am but i never told him to protect him and he was Mm -hmm. never prepared he was getting strange feelings he he knew from the moment he got near that door he should not have been there which is weird that the house was sort of rejecting him as mentioned again when mika goes into the house Mm -hmm. she goes this is strange it is not rejecting me Mm -hmm. but it rejected her son but he ignored it (laughs) i'm like oh this is gonna be bad By the way, that's one of my high points of the series is like, I like how we didn't get some sort of crazy death for every person. Sometimes you just take them right off screen and that's the last you see of them. And you know, you know, when they're taken off screen that they're done. And I really like that approach in this series. When we get to 1994, we see mm-hmm. that Kiyomi and Yudai, they changed their identities. They've been married and they have a five-year-old son named Toshiki. But Yudai is a, just a, continues to be like this total piece of crap human being i mean it was bad enough he raped somebody but like he's devolved into being an abusive husband and an abusive father yeah which i'm like are they trying to make us feel bad for him and i'm like no 
Because yeah, he started because, out being a garbage kid, you know? Like, he's a rapist. Yeah, he's, he's a, a rapist. rapist. And now a murderer, but that's his own doing. And let's not forget, we can't assume that was the first time he's that... raped someone. They raped someone, yeah. I, I think it's happened before. Because it seemed yeah. like a pattern. They find, they look for homes that are not inhabited, and they go into them, and they rape somebody. And, Which is... You know. Okay, Yoshi and Mai are also garbage, because it seems like after they help you they rape someone, they all have a turn with him. Like, it's gross. It is gross. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely a uh, ritual fetish thing going on with the three of them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And we also see that Odajima is approaching Haruka again and asks if she knows the location of the cursed house. But she doesn't know. But she decides to go visit Michiko, who agrees to perform a seance. I like the seances in this show because mm-hmm. everything is in completely black and they got the candles lit. So you all you just get is the orange glow in the scene. And then you start hearing the footsteps. And, you know, this is where I wish I had a better surround sound and a television because this show does so many good things with sound footsteps and the knocking and the croaking, you know, the infamous croak. My TV was just underperforming. <laughs> like, that sounds like someone this holiday season needs a sound bar. Yeah, no kidding. Or at a least like... suggested to me at work on Friday. I just need them to fix their audio issues when I'm streaming stuff. Exactly. Or even <laughs> watch this with on a laptop with headphones on. You know, that's another approach to go about it, right? No. I, I also, <laughs> I don't think I need that immersive experience. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> But I love that scene because the hand comes out of nowhere and points in the book of where the location, general location of the house is. I thought that was a really cool scene. I mean, maybe it's been in horror films before, but just seeing it there, how it was done, I thought it was really, really good. In fact, I should give credit to Sho Miyaki, who directed all six of these episodes. I thought he did a really, really, really good job. But yeah, you know, in that very same scene, we get Tetsuya who's saying like, don't go there. You know, he's he's warning them. It's so funny how there's all these warnings, but people tend to ignore these warnings, which is a horror trope, right? It's always like, don't go in the room where you hear the noise. And then what do people do? They go to the room where they hear the noise and they meet some fate. Yeah, this show is definitely following those tropes. And so we also get a new story thread in this series where the house itself has new occupants, which is a couple named Nobu and Kiko. Nobu is cheating with, I think her name was Chi, who's a pregnant woman. Unknown to them, Chi's husband, Kichi, has been spying on them for a while. And so you get this new thread here where it's like, it sets up that you feel bad for Kichi, Mm -hmm. but when you get to episode four and you come to find out that he drinks that glass of wine and then he's trying to force a glass of wine to Chi and she's just like, no, bro. And then then you find out he got poisoned as well. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing where it's like, did you think that by that point, Kichi was possessed. Do you think that Chi had been possessed by Nobu and then the energy that Chi is giving off is possessing Kichi? How, how did you interpret that, that whole thing? It's weird because Nobu lives next door in the cursed house, which is weird to think about like she is carrying Nobu's baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is the baby making her do this? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like this weird, fucked up thing. Sorry, I'm cursing a lot, but I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It is fucked up. I'll say it with you. It's messed up. up. (laughs) This is going to be a, this is probably one of the most horrific things I've seen in cinema in recent years. Doing some reading and, and research 
from people who love horror, people who mm-hmm. review horror, even they'll admit that what happened in that house between Chi and her husband, Kichi, was like one of the most graphic, crazy, horrible, horrifying things they've even seen in film or television as well, which is saying something, right? When you have right. like horror experts, horror fans who are even like, that was like, and, and this off. was, and this was like, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm just looking at this thing where I'm like, holy crap, because at first I thought he was done for, but no. It was poor execution on her part, don't you think? She kind of took her time with this. She takes one stab at him when he's over the toilet and she just didn't keep going. I don't think we spent enough time with her to gauge her character. Yeah, she was lovey-dovey with Nobu, which Nobu's also kind of a piece of shit because he kind of tells her, like, he's your spouse to get rid of, which he seems like he's also murdering his, which we find out he is also murdering his wife at the same time. Yeah, because they never said it outright when they were having those lunches together it just sounded like we're supposed to have our conversations and we're supposed to end this relationship and so when he said do you need me to help you at first because he did ask she said like no this is my problem i'll take care of it i just thought like did he want to be there for her to help her get through telling this news that hey this is our child you're getting a divorce so that we can raise Uh this child we we did this thing and we're owning up to it and we're going to you know divorce to start our own lives but no it comes to find out it's much more horrific than that which of course i should have known better watching this show. <laughs> but, 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 here's, but here's the sad thing. Kichi would be forgiven if she, if she hadn't called out Nobu for help. That's when the rage or the grudge took over. Okay. Slit her throat and where we find the origins of that gargling sound, which is a death rattle. Yeah, the death rattle. Oh, it was so good. It was so masterfully done. Her going along the wall and the blood streak and then like falling on the couch and making that noise. I was just like, oh, that was so well shot. eyes just (laughs) rolling up into her head. Yeah, she was fantastic in that. But you raised such a good point there because, yeah, maybe Kichi wasn't possessed. He was just shocked and just shocked and had that lapse. And, And I think that's also a running theme throughout the series. When you're hearing all those news reports, you have to remind yourselves people just do horrible things. And whether it was like already in them to do these horrible things or it's just like this moment of out of body experience where you just like lose control and you don't know what to do with yourself and you end up doing horrific acts like Kichi just did. Yeah, I think he was in in total shock until I think you're right. Hearing Nobu's name and that changed him. I think that's when the grudge took over. That's when it would change it because right after that what does he do he cuts open her stomach and he takes that baby out which is an an totally insane thing to do and like run off out of the house and that's the question too they're saying yeah the baby was alive i'm like how much of it is his own madness or the reality that it was able to breathe and feel alive for a while i think it was his own madness personally but i can see how people can think it was alive very short period of time Mm -hmm. so he goes to the cursed house we find out that the wife is dead. We found out that Nobu is hanging on the stairs and looked like he shit himself. <laughs> I, that was just like fucking surreal. Like, did we need to see that? It does happen. We need to shit yourself. But the other weird thing is that we saw it again later on in the series, like when the new family moves in and then they're they're having that vision and they see <laughs> like uh, was his name was uh, his name was you. He sees Nobu hanging there and he sees the shit there. And I'm like, OK, we didn't need to see that. He saw the shit on the stairs. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what time are we doing here? By time loop, David. Time loop. 
of a time loop. And speaking of time loop, at the moment, you don't even know that Kichi was talking to somebody who he was talking to. You thought it maybe would have been the woman in white, right? But it actually turned out to be the new pregnant wife, Tomoko, which was like, I thought a really cool way to kind of blend in all these timelines. When that was revealed to me in episode six, I thought, oh, that was really cool. I really like that. What do you think of the house having such a fluid timeline and how everybody has kind of like seen each other through the house? You know how Odojima as a kid happened to have seen Kiyomi trying to break through the glass and that's probably how she got the baby right it's just like there's like yes. all these like circular things which because we never seen her get the baby we never saw that part of her life where she appears with the baby or takes the baby like she says it was given to her maybe that's a plot hole because Yudai was with her that whole time right he had to have seen her pregnant was she ever actually pregnant unless that's they what were I was confused for, about unless they were separated for a bit Huh. Or maybe she was pregnant. She miscarried and then mm. never told him she miscarried and came back with the baby. But though it made it seem when she was entering the house for the last time after when she kills Yudai, that was the moment he saw and he had the baby and he put the baby down on the floor. But it shows her taking the baby or the woman in white. In fact, we see her come in, spread the photos of her rape and then is taken back by Yoshi and Ma. And she disappears. So that is like, can I go back to my high school days? I was like, oh, you poor sweet. (laughs) Because she was innocent. She was. She was. She could have had a normal life. It wasn't for those two luring her into that house. She would. I mean, granted, her mom was abusive, but she could have just like got through high school and then, you know, moved out of her mom's house. And then I think she would have been okay. But unfortunately, uh, the action happened really, really tragic. But, you know, seeing it all tie in like that I thought was pretty good in the end it's like I know I've already said this before but I just kind of like I feel bad because all these characters are heading towards this thing and and I it was nice to learn about Odajima's backstory and how he's tied in with the house now he understands why he was compelled to gather these stories and why he needed to get to that house because I mean he's had these repressed memories from his childhood I mean it's awful you know his sister went into that attic and then thought she saw her mom and then she disappeared and then he gets handed this baby and he runs down into the living room and he like just passes out and his dad finds him there and he's freaking out you know and then his dad's trying to leave the house and he just like turns into jelly (laughs) (laughs) and he's reliving all of these memories again and i love how like he's in color and then he's looking at the memories right in front of him in black and white Mm -hmm. or like when he's like fully in it and he's also in black and white i thought that was all really cool how they were playing with the colors there's like this weird symbiotic thing where yadima and kiyomi were both present for the genesis of their own trauma she was there when she like the day that he lost basically his whole family and that he was there when kiyomi experienced that trauma and got possessed by the lady in white which is hinted at the lady in white actually being his mother because there's one thing that a lot of people bring up and the many reviews i saw and explanations is we clearly see his father in the picture frame but the lie from the sun obscures his mother who's all in white which of course is her wedding dress i get the feeling that that was his mom as well 
And I, and I could be wrong about that. I don't know. I kind of feel like his dad, who was married to the woman in white, and the woman in white was kidnapped by the landlord's son. Or um, at least they and, were lovers. Or at least they were lovers. And then so the reason he got to that house was like he was looking for like, I don't know, just somehow maybe he wanted to be close to his dead wife or something like that. I don't know. It's something along those lines, right? I was, that's how I was interpreting it because we don't really get any backstory with him. We don't really uh-huh. get any information about him at all other than that. Uh-huh. Oh, that was my dad. So we kind of have to like try to see if we can put pieces together, theories together that make sense to us and to maybe explain his story and why he would move uh-huh. his family into that house. And yeah, I think it was because he was searching to be close to his wife again, even though she had been dead, which in a way is morbid. But I, I agree with you. I kind of latch on to that theory as well. I think he's the son of her. It's tricky. Let's take a moment to talk about Kimmy, the social worker. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Kimmy Ariasu, the social worker who is trying to help Toshiki be in a safe custody. Mm-hmm. But obviously that falls through and he's just like in a permanent like comatose state. He's from the house. Yeah. What do we think about Kimmy's fate here? Do you think she can we assume that she is going to die at some point? Yes. Which is a shame, man, because she did nothing wrong. Like, really? Step <laughs> you from know? the house. Step from the house. To me, that's not enough. You know what I mean? It is. That's not enough. It is. Th- oh. Those are the rules. I know. I know. Maybe I just don't like the rules. <laughs> Maybe it's just these people are too innocent and they're dying. Maybe it's just more tragic that way. Maybe it's effective what they're doing here. It's about respecting boundaries. Clearly, the message is there is unrestful spirits in this house because it is a final resting place. It's like if we decided and we have many a times dug up people, relocate them to build prime real estates. Oh, boy. Yeah, we sure have. The catacombs in France are there. <laughs> because we they did that we've done that throughout the u.s there are sacred burial grounds that the u.s was like eminent domain let's build a theme park over it and it's sort of like a thing like respect the dead you should not be going into these places and meddling with forces because every time there's a seance it only gets worse do right. not contact the other side. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tragic. It happens to most people. Haruka, even at the end, who's trying to bury the cassette tape containing the talk show interview with Odajima in the cursed house's backyard. And when she's about to leave, the uh, landlord's son grabs her from behind. And I was just like, no, like, I know that's such a very horror way to end a series, but it still had me like, no, not Haruka. But- <laughs> So the funny thing about that actress, Yuna Kuroshima, she'd actually appeared in two other Juon films. She was in Juon, The Beginning of the End, and in Juon, The Final, which was in 2014 and 2015, as a character named Yayoi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I just think that's funny that they got an actress from two films to play a totally different character (laughs) in this television series. When this television series is technically tied into these films. It's also funny describing her. She's a Japanese actress, model, and was known as a Tarento, which basically sounds like a socialite or at least like a television personality. Like she just pops up in television variety shows and a bunch of mass media stuff. She's Japan's Kim Kardashian. Is that what we're 
we're hinting at? She's like a Kardashian of sorts. Yeah, you could say that. Because or like a, maybe like a Chrissy Teigen type or something. I don't got know it. how often she's on television. But I thought she was pretty good in the show, though. So she's, she's got a lot of film credits. So she is like a legit actress. She sounds like a very busy person. So that's how the series ends. And before we move on, I just a couple more things I want to mention that I really liked mm-hmm. that happened in the series was I liked the scene with Otojima and the serial killer M in the mm-hmm. prison, their conversation. I just thought that actor was really interesting and I thought their chemistry and back and forth was really good. I almost wanted like more conversations between the two, almost like a like Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins type of thing where he Mm -hmm. like keeps coming back to him, asking him for like, or at least just someone to have a conversation with because it seems like Otajima doesn't really, he seems social enough, I guess you could say, but he's not like a big conversationalist, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he has any friends. It just seems like he has a lot of like acquaintances, but no one that he like hangs out with i guess you could say but that also ties in with just saying like we don't really get a lot of backstory with any of these people like we don't really know them i didn't realize until episode six. Oh wait he has a wife yeah and apparently that wife is also his agent i guess you could say seems to be yeah. i didn't know that was his wife they never said that was his wife <laughs> Because we've seen her before, but obviously very little screen time. I just thought that was an agent. I did not know that was his Which wife. is weird because you know that would have been a big plot point if it was written by Americans. It would be a whole backstory how his obsession is ruining this marriage. They would have yeah. given them a kid too. Which brings me back to the interesting point where there's, there is a detective character that we completely uh, glossed over. Well, no, that, that was the second thing I was going to bring up. Yeah. I was going to bring up the detective character, but go ahead and share your thoughts on him. Yeah, because he asked him two points questions. One, how did he know that the telephone was in the woman's because that was something that wasn't general knowledge that only the murderer would have known. Mm -hmm. And he goes I guess. I'm not a a non-fiction writer. I tell ghost stories. Mm -hmm. Which leads into the (laughs) thing where he goes, maybe that's why the house has left him alone because like the real estate agent, I bring more people to the house. And then he also asks him the poignant question where He's like, you're married. You don't have any kids. And he goes, you know how some bloodlines just die off because they need to? I think this one needs to die off. And I thought, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's some deep stuff. Because, yeah, you think about, like, why do certain bloodlines go around? You would think, like, they just don't want children or something. And it's like, no, maybe it is part of the curse where he's done the work of keeping. Because you also think of the real estate agent. We don't know much of the real estate agent, but he's the same way, too. He seems isolated. He doesn't seem like he has family or children. He has one sole purpose, bringing more families into that house. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, the detective can't just be like, I need to arrest you for this you know what I mean like there's nothing you can do about that what I did find refreshing about the detective is that he kind of sensed something was off and not just because he felt off but because his own policemen were telling them how they were feeling weird about after their experience of being in that house so he was more able to believe Otojima's stories and having conversations with them I thought that was refreshing we talked about it with the outsider which was also its own great dynamic with Ben Mendelsohn's character being like totally an unbeliever you know he can't 
possibly believe that there could be like some sort of like monster creature thing that is going around El Cuco, you know, like he like he can't wrap his head around that at all. So that really worked well for the story. In this particular miniseries, I did like how they presented this detective character. I thought it really worked well for the series. I think that might be like a cultural factor too, because going back to earlier comments, it's like, you're right, he would have been laughed off to the point where they would have threatened to arrest him multiple times because mm-hmm. he's interfering with an investigation. He got none of that here. Mm-hmm. Like he became an actual resource because mm-hmm. he was actually doing the work. <laughs> like he found a pattern. Something is happening with this particular location where you never see that in American horror stories. You never do. It's always yeah. about the one suspect doing all the stuff, not looking at a larger pattern. Because even when they try to pen it on the one person, it doesn't make sense until the very end where they're all dead and it doesn't matter anymore. Which I'm also curious too, like if there is a second series, which it doesn't seem like there will be, it would be dumb. And if they did want to restart or reboot the franchise, it should be films taking place at different houses. Absolutely. Speaking on those films, if you do want other materials to enrich the show's viewing experience, there are the Juon film series. Like I mentioned earlier, there are 13 or something like that. There's so many movies. But could be nine. So another note on this, actually, because you and I approached watching this differently. I actually spread it out over a week to finish off the series. You decided to binge it all in one day. What was your experience watching it all in one day like that? It felt like a film, to be honest with you, because they're 30 minutes long. So it's yeah. like a three hour film. And it actually right. worked really well because you were hooked. The only thing that sort of takes you out is the credit scenes, because there is this song mm-hmm. that is sung by an indigenous tribe or group within Japan. And it's never explained how it's, even if it's connected to the story. I feel like I mess up and undone research more into this group because maybe this haunted house is tied to that location where they originally occupied. Of course, through colonization, maybe might have been pushed out of that area. Yeah, yeah. Final thoughts. We'll definitely revisit this Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and then there's also this pond that they show in the credits. Is this a spiritual place also tied to this indigenous group as well? It's like the one thing where I'm like, it kind of takes you out, but it also kind of like it gives you a moment to reset for a second. Because I don't think if I didn't binge it after episode four, I don't think I would have continued. That was rough. Yeah. And we didn't talk about his death scene the, either. The prison. Yeah, we didn't talk about Kichi's death, which was in oh. the prison. They really went there, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, they, they really leaned into it. Which is um, another explanation of that scared face too. Yes, that is a very... Uh, and we never saw... the same thing. And we never saw like the guards reactions or the aftermath either you just left to the imagination because you just see that little fetus first eating like animal out of his food in the yeah. cell yeah. then he's crawling towards him up and putting his I don't know if we can call it a hand or whatever and like opening his mouth and you see his head just, and then the camera pans down as he's screaming and you see his feet sort of like struggling and then they just stop and end of episode that's a messed up shit right there it was, it, it was very messed up and I understand so when talking about who can enjoy this who can enjoy this show <laughs> 
<laughs> I know, right? If you're a horror fan, I do think you can enjoy this. You can get something out of it. Like Romeo just mentioned, it's, it is an easy watch. It honestly is. It's 30 minutes each episode, basically. It does start and end very well with their episodes mm-hmm. to kind of like help you transition to the next one really easily. Easy three hour watch. That episode four, it, it is tough. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, you can handle it. Suck it up. And like, no, no, no. Yeah. I texted Romeo ahead of time. I was like, hey, the episode four, there's some really messed up stuff that you should be ready for. Like, it's it's pretty squeamish. It's pretty rough. Right. And of course, like every freaking character in this miniseries, I ignore your warning. Not prepared. <laughs> I did not prepare my ass for what I saw. And it's like, like it's like kind of dust twilight. It's the sun was going down. And I'm looking at my closet and I'm like, yeah, maybe I sleep with that light on. No, no, I'm not going to lie, man. Like I watched this over the week, even last night when I had to take the trash out, it was already like past 10 o'clock. And yeah, my trash is like right across the parking lot. It's real quick. But even then, by that point, I was like, nah, man, it's dark. I don't want to go and like out there and someone come runs runs up behind me and grabs me. (laughs) I'm not having this. Not tonight. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like the show really did mess with me a little bit. It's a scary show. It does mess with you. And I'm like, even now is kind of dark in my room as I'm recording this. I'm like, Glancing over, I see you, pop figures. Right, you're not gonna buried mess together, with me. buried together, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an intense show. I'm not gonna lie, but if you're a horror fan, you'll probably enjoy it. If you're not a horror fan, don't watch this. This isn't for you. It's definitely not a good entry level into the film series. And and from what I hear, the film series also has some pretty crazy stuff. So even yeah, then, I don't even know if people Amer- should be watching that. I think the American version, which we won't talk about much i think more tamer oh yeah from what i hear a lot more tamer so yeah it's like this isn't one of those things where i mean we as much as we've enjoyed talking about it this isn't one of those things where we could just be like oh you but you should definitely check it out you should definitely do it and like no 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 it's, it's definitely for an audience a certain audience absolutely do we want to make suggestions for similar shows or franchises viewers might also enjoy romeo does anything come to mind for you not in terms of scary so it's hard because we're in the middle of the strike and we're trying to like we're kind of skirting the line because it is sort of a Netflix production but it's not because all Japanese production <laughs> but I will point out that Aaron Mankey lore podcast Ooh, I love that good job because on that. before it was connected to like historical events that sort of lead into sort of like the legends and inspire but he's also included a subsect within the lore podcast called lore legends where he can't pinpoint the origin of the legends but he's still tell you those legends from around the US and around the world and those drop every Sunday and that's what I listen to on my way to work on Monday mornings Lore is an excellent podcast and absolutely worth checking out if you like listening to podcasts and and I would also toss out his other podcast Unobscured because where Lore is a new theme every week this is a long formed one where he'll take one historic event his first season was, I believe, the Salem Witch Trials. And the one I'm currently 
on, I believe, is Jack the Ripper. So each season, he does go into a more detail, and he invites historians who studied that subject to give more context. And cool. talking about how what was also happening at the same time actually made these events much worse. So yeah, like Aaron Mankey, you can't go wrong with Aaron Mankey if he wants something um, similar. Yeah, with that being said, I mean, I can recommend like other Japanese horror. Like you can check out the Ringu films as well. Right. There was a crossover between Juno and the Ring series in 2016. Cool. It was Sadako vs. Kyoko. Their own little Freddy versus Jason, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we'll be covering next Halloween. I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, Romeo, we did it. We talked about Jew on Origins. <laughs> and we were slightly just traumatized. <laughs> just slightly traumatized. Only slightly. I'm glad we did this. So we'll talk more about it in our final thoughts. But yeah, this was our Halloween episode of this year. I wish we could do more, but with time and everything and how everything kind of worked maybe out with the strikes. Year. Next maybe year for next sure. Year. And maybe we'll do something else from the Asian film industry or something. That'd be, that'd be really fun. We can really go exploring our options here worldwide. Listeners, stay tuned for Final Thoughts and Mailbag. Welcome back. So the origins of doing Juon Origins stem from the writer's strike and the Screen Actors Guild strike that is happening right now, but is actually getting close to coming to an end, at least from the writer's side of things. But also seems like that with the Screen Actors Guild, that things will line up pretty nicely for both guilds to finish up sooner rather than later. So that's exciting. But in the end, it was still a lot of fun to do this show. When we started doing the recording, it started to feel like we were doing a season review view like we did back when we had our radio show. It kind of took me back to a little bit because we were going episode by episode for a minute there because it felt like that was like the best approach on how to talk about this show with it being a mini series and having only six episodes. It just felt like it was the best approach and we got a lot more out of this than I expected we would even though this was one of our shorter recordings and that's because it's just one of the more shorter programs we've ever done. There was still a lot of stuff that we were picking at and talking about that made it for a pretty good discussion. I'm pretty pleased with how it all turned out there were some messed up things i've learned (laughs) i didn't even think that could possibly ever yeah it was um quite amazing japanese horror uh, hits different i enjoyed it before that we did broad church and i think going forward perhaps we might dedicate at least one of our episodes for each calendar year to something like overseas because i think i enjoy finding stuff that's not made from the traditional american media because i've learned things that i culturally like i said japanese horror is a unique and fascinated genre because if you put side by side our haunted house stories to theirs. There are similarities, but there are like vastly differences too, which I find fascinating. And I used to study folklore. I thought about for a while being a folklorist, looking at the same type of story. Coincidentally, each part of the world has their own version of the same story. And there are similarities and vast differences too, which I really find fascinating. And here with this, it kind of brought me back to those roots where I'm like, oh, this is similar to what we do in our stories. And then, oh, here's a new fear that's unlocked I never thought about. (laughs) That's right. A new fear just dropped when I watched. (laughs) 
little baby crawling in mouths. They didn't think that would happen. (laughs) (laughs) So we got a couple things to touch on before we move on. There was the origins of the end credits song that we wanted to touch on. And that is the song called Song Kano. I believe that's how you pronounce it. I'm sure I butchered it, but that's how I'm just phonetically saying it, how it's spelled. It's performed by the band called Maruru. I'm going to go with Maruru. They are an Ainu band, a group of Ainu people. And if you never heard of the Ainu people, they are an ethnic group related to indigenous peoples native to northern Japan and as well as like other islands. So, I mean, it's a very eerie, haunting song. I couldn't really find any details as to why the song was selected or what the lyrics even are to the song, but it just really works for the end credits, strangely enough, Hmm. even though it almost feels like it doesn't even connect in a way, but it works. It's a really good song. It's just an interesting choice. I I wish I could find more. I wish I can find a reason because you talked about it and you gave some really interesting points how there could be a deeper meaning here. And so I'm just a little frustrated that I wasn't able to find that deeper meaning. And then, (laughs) and I'm also constituting this just came into my mind as well. Like, I'm kind of wondering, like, I hope this group gave consent. When we talk about like how cultural songs from a specific group and maybe just me just being cautious because Western media studios and directors sometimes take advantage and are telling stories or incorporating elements of other people's cultures without paying their amount of respect. So I'm kind of cautious to like thinking, do they want that particular song? Which of course we have no information like the cultural significance to this particular group. Do they want to associate it with mm-hmm. this? this type of story. Yeah, because ultimately it's usually the music labels that are giving the permission for this music to get used, you know? And yeah, is it the same for a music label that maybe might be based out of Japan, a a band that might be based out of Japan? Maybe they didn't have a say. Hopefully we don't find out years later that they had an issue with this particular piece of music because you're right, it does fit that sort of the mystery because again, we're not really given like the true origin. Yeah, we got like the first incident of the house, but I feel like there's always something deeper there and we never get all the answers which i kind of like and like you're right that music sort of plays into the mystery because it's never explained it's not really part of the story itself i think we're ready to move on so if you ever want to reach us you can always do it at benchessentials at gmail.com it's a great way to send us your questions or comments about the show anything you send us we'll just talk about it on our next final thoughts what would be greatly appreciated if you listen to us on any of your podcast platforms if there's an ability to rate us and review us we would greatly appreciate whatever positive rating that you'd like to give for the podcast especially on apple podcasts give us five stars give us a review really helps with the algorithms as we continue to try to get this show built up more than what it is it's a little tougher because you know we're only doing one episode a month so i understand that it's hard to build an audience when you're only releasing one episode a month is what it is right now we might be formulating a plan where we can do some bulk recordings that are quick and easy and everything then then maybe it'll help like we talked about in the original recording here how we said that next October maybe we can do four episodes or something well that's something that we can plan and do ahead of time and get done and that would be it's Halloween it's my favorite time of the year and I wish there were more Christmas franchises that we could also or holiday franchises that we could also you know build off of as well but there there really is so few and far between unfortunately if you want to find us on social media 
medias. You can find us on Facebook at Binge Essentials, and you can find us on Instagram at Binge Essentials. You can find me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can find Romeo at rmora02. You can find me on Twitter at David Rocha Radio, and you can find Romeo at rmora1. Let's go ahead and move on to teasing next month's episode. Next month, as Romeo would like to say with confidence, <laughs> is going to be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film trilogy from the 90s. We recorded this quite some time ago, expecting it to be released in August, just in time for the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem film. But the strikes happened and Romeo promptly said, we need to change plans here to be in uh-huh. solidarity with what's going on with the Writers Guild. And I said, OK, fine. But now that end seems in sight and maybe the Screen Actors Guild are right around the corner, we're going to uh-huh. confidently say now that for our November release, it will be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the trio of films from the 90s. This discussion was just between me and Romeo, and it was quite a funny one. So you thought Juon was short. Get <laughs> Be prepared for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to be shorter because even though we had a lot of fun uh, talking about these films, man, they're really not that deep, are they? Except no, for the first not. one. The no, first one's kind of deep, but the other two are like, okay, this is this is trash. I have so many issues, and I feel like the creators were right to be disappointed. <laughs> so in the end, even though it was a very short recording, it was still a lot of fun to talk about, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy uh, listening to that. And hey, you know what? Maybe just to pad the runtime, we can each watch Mutant Mayhem and give our thoughts on the film and our final thoughts. We could do that. Yeah, you know. we could do that. All right. I want to thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you guys next month.